So again, my name is Patrick. I live down in Rochester. So I was supposed to preach uh, this past winter. I was scheduled to preach, and there was a, a blizzard that day. Some of 90, I think, was shut down, so I wasn't able to come. I was supposed to preach in April, um, but then COVID hit, so I wasn't able to come. So if the asteroid hits or if the aliens show up, just know that it's God sparing you again from my preaching. So let me pray, and then we'll get into our text. Lord God... Thank you for your word. Thank you that it has power to shape and change and mold and move and convict and convince us. Would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of who you are? And we might know the depth of your love for us, that we might know and comprehend and feel your love and power work toward us on our behalf through Christ. Would you come and help us listen and receive you and your word in Jesus name. Amen. So have you, um, speaking of asteroids, aliens, have you guys ever like just been looking up at the sky, maybe a clear night, you're looking at all the stars and you just thinking about how small you are in the grand scheme of things. And you just wonder yourself, wonder to yourself, like, like, I wonder how Liam Neeson came to have such a gangster Hollywood resume as an actor. Seriously, this guy, has been everything. He's, been, he's battled wolves. He's been a martyred Jesuit priest. He's been an Irish revolutionary leader. He's been the leader of the A-team. He's been Oscar Schindler. He's been Zeus, Raza Ghul, Qui-Gon Jinn, and Aslan. Let me repeat those last couple. He's been a Greek god. He trained Batman. He was a Jedi. And he was Aslan, a.k.a. Jesus. Liam Neeson wins all of the Oscars. My favorite Liam Neeson role is when he plays Brian Mills in the movie Taken. In this movie, there's, he has a daughter, and his daughter decides to go on a trip to Eastern Europe, and she lies to her dad. She's disobedient, and spoiler alert, she gets, she gets taken. She, and her dad has a particular set of skills, and he goes on a one-man rampage, and he breaks down every door, and he cuts through enemy, every enemy to rescue his taken daughter. And that's kind of what we have in our text today. So our text is Ephesians 2, if you want to turn there and read, read with me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. So in Taken, her story was over. This disobedient and foolish rebel girl went against her loving father's good wishes and wisdom. She gets kidnapped, sold off into slavery, and is literally on a boat to another country never to be heard from again. But Liam Neeson shows up, but dad, but Aslan, but God. 
He shows up when the situation is humanly impossible. And this shouldn't surprise us here. This shouldn't surprise us here in Ephesians. This is what we've been seeing through the whole story. In fact, the entire story of the Bible could be summarized as, but God. So I want us to look at, but God in the Bible, the whole story. I want to look at, but God here in Ephesians. And then I want to look quickly at, but God in our own stories, in your own story. So we're going to go through kind of the Old Testament narrative quickly. Some of these stories will be familiar. If you're not that familiar with the Old Testament, just get in. And as you read, no matter almost every story you read, it's, you're going to walk away with, oh, but God, but God, but God. So in the beginning was nothing, but God spoke. Everything came into being. A universe came into existence. Adam and Eve did what God said not to do, and they discovered guilt and shame and fear. What is God going to do? He should slaughter them. He should start over. But God, he slaughters an animal on their behalf. He covers their shame and nakedness himself, and he promised that there would be an end to the death they, that they brought into the world. And they multiply. Man multiplies. Pretty soon, everyone is only doing evil all the time. This far from the peace of the garden and the beauty God created his people for. The people must be destroyed, so the waters come, the flood comes, but God. He saves one man and his family on the boat, and he uses that one man to redeem and restore his creation. Abraham is just some dude living in a tent in Ur. He's probably worshiping the moon. He is headed toward a life of anonymity, eventual death, and probably eternal destruction, but God calls him out of darkness into his marvelous light. Abraham has promised a son, but him and his wife are super old, so they literally laugh in the face of God when they look at their wrinkled bodies and their dried up womb. The situation is bleak, but God, he blesses them with a child. He has children, many children. The Israelites multiply, but then they get enslaved and they're oppressed under the Egyptians. But God, he leads them out of Egypt, saves them, but he leads them right up to the waters, giant body of water in front of you, an army of death coming from behind this may be the end of that great rescue mission, but God, he parts the waters, he leads them through, and he drowns the army behind them, only to lead them out into the desert. Moses leads them into the desert where they are on the brink of starvation and dehydration, but God, manna from heaven, cracks a rock open, gives his people something to drink, and they eventually make it to the promised land, and the pe people immediately start doing what we've, been what we've always been doing doing what is right in their own eyes, but God, through the period of the judges, raise it up, raises up deliverer after deliverer. Things finally, finally hit an uptick with King David, right? It's a man after God's own heart. Here now, a man should be able to step up and do good and honor God. Oh, but King David, he impregnates a woman who is not his wife, he tries to fool her husband into thinking it's his baby, and then he has that man killed when that doesn't work. The baby dies. All seems hopeless. The once promising king who was going to lead us into prosperity forever showed himself to be a great sinner. But God, he gives Bathsheba a son, and he carries on the line through her. Have you ever wondered at what audacious grace this is? He makes her son the wisest man of all time and brings a line of kings and eventually brings a savior of the world through his line, a son of adulterer, son of a murderer. One of this kid's descendants 
Hezekiah the king, he's facing another insurmountable task later on. The Assyrians are besieging the city. The city is facing starvation, or if they leave, they're going to face death. They're eating children. Things are dire. And in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord, but God's everyone. And he goes through the camp and he slaughters 185,000 Assyrians in one night without the Israelites having to lift a finger. After this, you think we'd be a little more honorable, follow God a little more wholeheartedly, but then we have wicked king, wicked king, civil war, terrible sin, idol worship, children sacrificed to these idols, great sieges, enslavement again, and eventually they get taken into exile. Surely this will be the end of the once promising kingdom, right? But God, he has mercy, he restores, he shows up, he saves a remnant and he brings them back to the promised land to rebuild the temple. Some years of silence, but finally, the living, breathing embodiment of all God's goodness comes into the world and he lives a life of perfect love amongst the people and then he is ruthlessly, savagely slaughtered and he's stuck into a grave. Again, all hope seems lost, but God, but God raises Jesus from the dead and defeats death, sin, the devil forever. And then this risen savior heads back to heaven his little band of followers seems to be gaining some traction until they begin to get ruthlessly hunted down and persecuted. And it looks like another fad has just come and gone in the ancient world for, to forever be forgotten about. But God, he explodes the growth in all directions and he uses a man who headed up that persecution to become a leader in his church. That man's name was Saul, eventually Paul. He was a self-righteous, angry. He was blind to the truth. He was a murderer. But God changes his life, makes him a new creation. Then he uses this man responsible for trying to destroy the church to preach the faith he once tried to destroy and become the greatest missionary and the greatest letter writer that the world has ever known. And this man wrote a letter. And that's where we find ourselves today. So we should not be surprised here in Ephesians, when we get to Ephesians, that God shows up in the darkest and most hopeless of situations. So read with me again, one through three in Ephesians two. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind all those stories from the Old Testament. All those stories are grim and dark and dramatic, but is there any more hopeless fate, any trajectory more tragic than what we see here in Ephesians? You were dead, dead. Here's the problem, you're dead. Here's the solution, be alive. Good luck, figure it out. Spiritually, we are without life apart from Christ. You are in the grave. You have no desire for the true God and no ability to please him. Paul uses dead here for a reason. You need 
to know the raw reality of your life apart from Christ. This is the only way to know the depth of his beauty and his love for you. A, a wise woman was commenting on this, and she said, like, if you have a cough, or if your friend has a cough and comes to you and is like, hey, I think God healed me from your cough, you'd be like, all right, cool, man. But if your friend came to you and said, I, I had cancer and God healed me, you'd, you'd celebrate with them. Now, if your friend whose funeral you were at last weekend came to you and was like, yo, I'm back, I was dead, now I'm alive, you'd be in awe. That's what we need more of. That's why we need to see that apart from Christ, you are dead. But so many are still walking around and breathing and laughing and playing and choosing and even being kind and loving. So, so what does this really mean to be dead? To be dead is to simply lack life, right? Darkness is not a thing. It's just lacking light. Death is similar. So the question to ask is, what is life? Life is existence. The Greeks used two words. They used suke and zoe. So it's kind of like how we would determine like life is biology, life is being alive, or life is something even deeper, life is something suke. That's where we get psyche, a soul, something deeper going on. And we know this from experience. We know from school, we know from biology that life is just being alive, but we also know if you looked at the life of maybe like like somebody addicted to drugs, somebody addicted to meth, the way that they're living, one, one way we describe them is that's no life to live. They're missing out on so much life. We know that life is not merely biology. We know something deeper is going on. True existence, true life is what is good and right and beautiful. And God, God is ultimate goodness, truth, and beauty. So God is life, and God is the source of all life. In John 5, 26, John writes, the Father has life in himself. This can be said of no one else in the universe. No one is self-existent. No one is self-sufficient but our God. No one has life in himself. There's one being in all the universe that can be said has life in himself, and that's our God. Now here, many can even agree with this, right? Many non-Christians, even Muslims, Mormons, they'll be saying yes and amen. God is life. We must seek God. There's a whole new age spirituality that says we must find spiritual purpose. There's no real life apart from seeking a connection to the divine. But John 5 goes on. And he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So some of you, some of our friends, some of our family, some of those around us say, yeah, I love God. But why'd you have to bring Jesus into it? Because he is God. Saying you love God and you find meaning and purpose for life in him, but you don't believe in Jesus is like me telling my wife, like, yo, baby, I love you, but I just don't like your face or your actions or your, the things you say or generally what you stand for or, you know, your general existence, but I love you. No, no, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, the full essence of God in bodily form. God is life, and God is Christ, so Christ is life. This is who he is. John 14, he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is why he came John 10, he came to give life and life abundantly. 
And this is what he prays. Father, and this is eternal life that they know you. They know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In 1 John, John sums it up so well. 1 John 5, God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So any life lived apart from this life, capital L, life, is not true life. So simply put, death is being separated from Christ. And it is our sins and our trespasses that have caused this separation from Christ, that have caused this death. It happened in the garden. It's what you were born into. It's our natural state, and it's what we've been choosing gladly ever since. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. To trespass is to go somewhere you shouldn't. God said, don't eat this one fruit. And we said, I must taste it. God said, walk by faith, and we chose works. God said, trust me. We said, "Mm, I'm going to trust Oprah instead. I'm going to trust me. I'm going to follow my heart. To sin means to miss the mark. It's not just doing something wrong. It's missing your intended target. You were made, your target is the glory of God. You're made to enjoy him, honor him, thank him, know him, walk with him, love him. But you've missed your purpose. You've missed the mark. You've sinned. And the wages of the sin, as we've been seeing, the wages of this separation is just is death. It's being separated from God. They're the same thing. To sin and to trespass at its core is really just It's really just looking for life everywhere and anywhere but where true life is really found. It's looking for true meaning, true purpose, and hope anywhere but where true meaning, true purpose, and hope is really found. You see this, and and often, especially in the church, if you've grown up in the church, we often just think of sin as, that's that's the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But there's other ways that sin looks. I call it, one way is... One way is the Tom Brady way, right? It's, it's money, power, fame, career, spouse route. You're looking for meaning there. The other way is the Saul, Paul, the author of our letter way. And it's religious, morality, good standing way. We, we tend to do both. And Tom Brady, he, he had it all. Multiple Super Bowl rings, top of his career, top of his field, supermodel wife, worldwide fame, most recognizable athletes on the planet. And he was being interviewed a couple years ago. And it took a real like deep turn in the interview. It's on 60 Minutes. And he's like, why? This is Tom Brady talking. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? He probably has like 20 now. It's been a couple years. And I still think there is something greater out there for me. I come to it, I'm top of the food chain here, and I think... There's got to be more than this. So the interviewer said, what's the answer? And he said, I I wish I knew. I wish I knew. If there's anyone winning at life, secular point of view, it's Tom Brady, is it not? If you're chasing your meaning and purpose and significance in money, power, fame, wealth, status, career, spouse, Tom Brady has you beat. He's better at it. 
and listen to his words. This is Ecclesiastes saying the same thing. There's got to be more than this. There's got to be more to life. So that's one route. The other route is Saul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as Philippians says. Moral of the moral, perfect keeper of God's law, rose to the top of society, respected by all as a religious and upright guru. But Paul, looking back on this period of his life, what does he call it in Philippians? Rubbish, trash, dung. This is all nothing. Tom Brady and Saul were both dead men seeking life, seeking meaning, purpose, and fulfillment apart from where it could be really found. They're just dead men walking. Another way to look at it is if you're in a desert and you want to live, you should stay near the water, right? If there's any water to be found, you need to find water. You're going to die. Water is the source of life. Trespassing and sinning is just walking away from the water. And the water is screaming out to you, I'm right here, over here, over here, over here, come to me. You'll live. Some of your friends and family, they're chilling next to the water. They've been there for years. They're chasing you down like, come here, come here, come here. We found water and you're out here dying. And you're like, nah, I don't really believe all that. I'm going to keep going this way and see what else I can find and see where I can find life as I travel through this desert. There's got to be water somewhere else. Stop. Stop looking for life where it cannot be found. And the most tragic part of this spiritual death is that we'll never turn. That's what he's getting at in Ephesians. We'll never turn. That's the worst consequence of the fall is that everything we do apart from faith, even all the good and great things apart from faith in Christ is sin, as Romans says. We are blind. We are incapable of pleasing God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you keep chasing and you'll never turn. But God, the loving Father, He knows that you won't turn. He knows you are incapable. He knows you've been duped into willingly following what Ephesians 2 says, and it's your own sinful heart. It's the ways of the world, following the course of the world and the devil. He knows you've been taken. Christian, you, you must remember this. You must remember this. That's what Paul goes on right after our section of text. Is, Therefore, remember that you were separated from Christ. And one pastor says you need to know this because you'll never know your identity in Christ until you know your identity apart from Christ. We're in an utterly helpless and dreadful state. It's impossible to escape by human standards, but God and just like in the beginning, was all, when all was black, the king said, light. And light resplendent overtook the darkness in a magnificent display of raw power and creativity and grace. So now against this grimmest and bleakest backdrop of death and wrath, the king speaks again. Commentator put it like this, just when things look the most desolate, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, but God, that's where this text turns, but God made us alive. 
our sins and trespasses led us right into the tomb. We were dead and rotting away in the grave like Lazarus. But he said, come forth, come alive. He ripped out our hearts of stone and placed in us a heart of flesh. He went on a one-man rescue mission. He beat down every enemy. And when we were enslaved and about to be taken away forever, he kicked down the door. He shot our captor in the head. He brought us into his loving arms and he took us home. He stripped off our grave clothes. He washed us clean in the blood of Christ and the waters of baptism. And he placed us in his royal robes of righteousness. The source of life, life itself, was killed for the sins that killed you. And then he brought us to the family table. He brought us back to God. He gave us life. Why? Why would he do this? Love and mercy. Because that's who he is. Look back at the text. Where it turns, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Mercy, love, grace. That's who our God is. He is mercy, love, grace. Don't look at anything in and of yourselves that you should merit God's action on your behalf. The taken girl, she doesn't look at herself and say, oh, I must be so lovely must be so wonderful that my dad would come to choose and rescue me. No, she says, look at how great and powerful and strong and beautiful and mighty my dad is, that he would come and rescue me. You don't need to live your day-to-day -day life as if God's approval depends on you. It doesn't. You are alive. And you are alive together with Christ. If you believe in this Christ, then you believe that this Christ is alive and if he's alive, then you're alive. Together with Christ is what it says. Breathe. That's freedom. That's life. It's so good. Paul wants to remind the Ephesians and us and that God shows up when the situation is most bleak. He wants to remind us of the depth of our beauty and uh, the depth of our sin and the beauty of our rescue. He wants us to be astonished at his power and grace and love and mercy because he knows that remembering this, that's why I said Christian, remember, he knows that remembering where we've come from makes us a softer, gentler, more grateful, more humble, more hopeful, more faithful people. So remember this reality daily. And it fuels our faith by reorienting us to a God of grace and it points us out to a future where no matter how bleak our circumstances are, we can say, but God. So, but God, where's he at in your story? You, this is your story. All of our testimonies, if you are in Christ, can be summed up in these two words, the greatest short phrase in human history, but God, that's my story. And Romans 8.32 shows us that it's not just our salvation in eternity, but our day-to-day -day that is changed. And the banner of but God can reign over our every day. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You're tired and weak, but God. You're depressed, but God. You're sick, 
but God. You're selfish, but God. You're stuck in your addiction. It doesn't seem any way out, but God. You don't know if you can stand up underneath the crushing burdens of simply existing, but God. You feel so worthless and unlovely, but God. You feel so worthy, but God. You think you're a pretty good person, you have no need of a savior, but God, he can crush your pride. You don't feel any affection or desire to pray or read your Bible or spend time with your brothers and sisters in the faith, but God changes affections. You feel like you can't fight these doubts and temptations another day and you may just call it good and abandon your faith, but God. COVID is keeping the church family from gathering throughout the week and it leaves Sundays feeling a little stale and impersonal, but God cherishes and nourishes and sustains his church. Maybe you can never get over the things that, have, that you've done or the things that have been done to you, but God. The Vikings find another way to crush your soul in a dramatic loss, but God. Your marriage is a mess, but God. You long for your child to walk with Christ or long for your brother or coworker or neighbor to meet Jesus, but they're hard and they're dead, but God. He holds all power and authority and has been and always will be about showing off that power and authority for his glory and the good of all of his people. This is real. And this is how he so often chooses to show up, but not always so. And what about when the cancer hits? What about when you're at stage three? So you're thinking, but God, he's gonna change the things. What about when it goes to stage four and there's no cure? What about when the spouse dies? What about when the marriage is rocked and it doesn't get better? What about when brokenness and worse follows? Cormac McCarthy, a great but kind of bleak author, he writes this, there are no absolutes in human misery and things can always get worse. Rather chipper fella, where is God? Where is he? We stopped. We stopped on the biblical story, right? But God in the story, we stopped at the building of the church and of Paul, but that's not the end of the story. And that's not your end. He might show up and part the waters, but it might also go from bad to worse. But God will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he died to purchase. He is with you, he is near, and he is so near that the psalmist says he's bottling up your tears. He will hold your hand through the fire and carry you through the valley of hell and into his kingly courts. So don't quit, my beloved brothers and sisters. Don't quit. He made you alive. He will never let go. This is who our God was and is and is to come. Whatever situation you are facing, remember who your God is. Remember that he has made you alive in Christ and then stare your mountain of suffering in the face and you say, but God, though he slay me, I will trust him. Tattoo that on your soul. 
The world seems so broken and life is hard and loved ones die and faith is shaky, but God will wipe away every tear from our eye and death shall be no more and neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore because he who is seated on the throne is rich in mercy and has loved you with a great love and has made you alive in Christ and will make all things new. And as Ephesians 2, 7 says, the end of our text, he will spend eternity, eternity, showing you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. You want to know the depths? You want to know the length of his grace? You need to spend an eternity trying to see it. You still won't come to the end of it. This life, even at its best, is incomplete. It's broken and it's finite. We struggle, we doubt, and people die, and our hearts mourn and they break, and that's real. But our Jesus, he died He rose, he made us alive with him that he would be our God. These light and momentary afflictions will become a thing of the past. All praise to the one who died to bring you home, to die to give you this glorious hope that died so that he would never let you go. If you don't know him, turn to him. And if you do know him, remember where you came from, remember your identity apart from Christ. And then listen to him now and walk with him. And then look ahead to where you are going. And never let go. Let's pray. Lord God, would you show us that you are in control? Would you come? We have a million situations, each one of us. We don't know even the depths of our own suffering, the depths of our own sin. So would you come and show us again that but God and you change things. Would you change things and bring people out of suffering and into flourishing and help us to know that even in the midst of our suffering, you are with us. You will hold us down. You will strengthen our faith. You will bring us to yourself. And that's our greatest hope. So would you enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might know the hope to which we have been called? And what are the riches of a glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe? Would you do that for your glory and our good and our joy and the good of those around us? Amen.